Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Time Extend. My name is Adam Ismail, as always, and I am joined today with... Brendan Rorison, and uh, we've got another guest episode today, so it's not just going to be myself and Adam uh, blaring down your ears. We also have with us uh, Digital Foundry's finest, uh, John Linneman. John, how is it going? Hey, it's going pretty good, guys. I'm happy to be here, talk some racing games, talk some racing tech, all that good stuff. You know I love this stuff. I'm so happy to have you on, John. Uh, we're both big fans of your work, and uh, personally, I knew as soon as I saw that there were uh, Ridge Racer and Daytona USA episodes of Digital Foundry, <laughs> I knew I wanted you on this show. Um, oh, yeah. Love that stuff. Yeah. So glad glad we could make it happen. Um, and this is... A, every episode of Time Extend is international by nature, of course, but, but this one really is... Um, and I'm getting up at 4 a.m. to make it happen, so... <laughs> that is commitment. pure dedication. <laughs> <laughs> not not to gloat or anything. Um, uh, but, yeah, so... The topic for this episode is uh, a little bit different than what we normally do. Normally we'll have, like, a, you know, a certain series we'll want to talk about, or we'll have news um, that is relevant and worth talking about. Uh, this one is going to be centered on... Uh, racing games that were really kind of impressive tech showcases over the years. And, uh, you know, John, obviously this is a topic that you are, are very familiar with and uh, we thought it would be fun to talk about. Um, especially in the context of, of older games because uh, it, it was just more of a phenomenon back then, you know, when the new system would come out, uh, usually among the slate of launch titles, there would almost always be a racing game and that racing game would almost always be one of the the earlier prime examples of of really impressive tech on the system yeah it's a great way to showcase a new console i think and typically you know the generating enough content for a racing game is a little easier than some other genres for hitting launch so it made a lot of sense to see these sort of like hardware pushing uh examples right away yeah and you know there's it's interesting comparing the stuff that that appears obviously in the beginning of a system's lifespan but what appears at the end um and and thinking about the beginning specifically um the first series that that i thought really made sense to to kind of bring up is obviously ridge racer because it it launched with so many platforms um also i mean with the with the PS1 titles, uh, it was it was around throughout kind of the, the lifespan of the system, but later on it was more of a launch thing. But it, it's funny because like trying to figure out, and I was saying this to both of you, trying to figure out where to start with Ridge Racer is almost difficult because like it was there, it was so present all the time, you know. Um, yeah. And there are so many examples of of really uh, impressive. Namco was almost always trying to push the boundaries of whatever hardware. Uh, they were making games for, uh, especially with the PS1, and Ridge Racer is such a perfect example of that. Yeah, for sure. I also think, like, um, when you look at it across both the, the home consoles and portables, it's like Ridge Racer was just such a major factor, especially on PlayStation, for, for quite some time. So, like you say, there's just so many titles that you could delve into. Yeah, I would I would say the key titles here in terms of pushing hardware, it's it's the launch games for PlayStation 1, 2, 3, and uh, the PSP. Because each of these games did some impressive things right away at launch. Like, obviously, Ridge Racer 1, right? 
the big thing there is that it was bringing home the arcade experience to the PlayStation. And it got close, you know, as a launch game. Obviously, the frame rate was halved, the resolution was reduced, but it looked like the arcade game. It ran smoother than any other sort of home racing game at the time, like it was 30 frames per second. Uh, and that actually really gave it a leg up over the competition. I mean, obviously, there's the Sega Saturn with Daytona, which was 20 frames <laughs> per second and, you know, reduced detail all around. And I've always thought it's a little bit unfair in the sense that Ridge Racer on in the arcade was sort of a somewhat lower spec game than Daytona USA. I mean, Daytona had the Model 2 hardware pushing it, a huge play field of cars, like texture filtering, like it was super advanced. So there's no way you're bringing that home. So they did all right considering that. But Ridge Racer just had that advantage in that the PlayStation wasn't that different or that far off from that Ridge Racer arcade hardware. So you could actually get something that really looked and felt a lot like the arcade game. Yeah, and for the time, I mean, pretty much just suffering a, a slight reduction in resolution and half the frame rate was still really good in terms of an arcade port, right? Yeah, I so. mean, that's the, that's the key. I mean, you think about it, like, this came out in 1994 in Japan, uh, the original Ridge Racer did. You know, if you look at other console racing games, you know, on Super NES, what, you have Stunt Race FX running at like 7 frames per second, <laughs> Virtua Racing on, on the Mega Drive slash Genesis would come along, and that's like 15, uh, you know, Need for Speed on the 3DO would show up. It was a cool game, but the frame rate was absurdly low, um, you know. Just home racing games didn't really run smoothly, specifically the 3D po polygon racers. So to have one that was 30 frames per second was like, uh, that was incredible. Now this will actually bring up a, a point that we often get criticized for here on Time Extend. And Brendan, I actually don't really know where you where you stand on this, but... <laughs> Uh, so, so my issue with Ridge Racer is that with the early games, I... I feel like they really didn't get the physics and the car handling down until 4. Um, and for that reason, even though the original Ridge Racer is very impressive from a technical standpoint, and as you say, I mean, it had like three times the frame rate of Daytona USA, uh, or not not, uh, not three times, sorry, but it had, um, it had a it much smoother faster. frame rate. Yeah, faster. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. of the arcade version there. Um, it, I just can't get down with the handling. There's just something that feels um, really kind of lazy I, about the way the so cars steer. <laughs> I, know, I know what you mean about this, actually, but there's a couple things. First of all, I'm, I'm doing something with these games soon, so I played a ton of these original Ridge Racer games again in the last couple weeks, and you, you totally can get back into it. I kind of feel like I finally had a good handle on the drifting system. It is challenging, hmm. uh, and in yeah. some ways it feels like it's still tuned to be played like i've always said ridge racer is one of the few racing games that works really well with the d-pad and that's true but at the same time like the yeah. first games like they feel like they really want a little bit of that arcade steering wheel kind of action for the best play because you kind of the big problem i have and you can master it but it's when you come out of a drift yep uh it feels sometimes like it's hard yeah. to like <laughs> gain traction again and so you smack into a wall basically so mastering that is tough but uh, you can totally get it. And you're right. I, I would agree that they got more polished in time uh, in terms of handling. Yeah, I think like the the original game, um, especially, 
it's very easy to kind of play the game wrongly as well and not be punished too much by it in the sense that learning how to drift is obviously a core part of Ridge Racer and later kind of dictates where the series goes when it kind of cranks up to 11. But I feel as if even when like I was younger playing the original Ridge Racer, I would often be like going round corners at like hilariously slow pace and stuff, but still feel as if I was doing well <laughs> and um, been able to overtake some cars. But um, it, it's not my go-to whenever I want to play some Ridge Racer, but I do feel as if maybe that's for one of the reasons I think you were saying there, John, just in the sense that because it, it's so kind of specific the way that the cars kind of drift in that game and especially coming out of the drifts being really difficult, it's it's one of those ones where although there's kind of small content, there's a lot to master on the gameplay side of things, which I think is yeah. why you could spend a lot of time trying to learn how to play and get into that. But ultimately, you kind of you naturally train toward what you know, and I think that's why most people kind of trained towards kind of ray tracer onwards. Yeah, I think that's actually an interesting point, and that's you know if the game was just to pick up and you just immediately could master those drifts like if it had like say ridge racer 6 and 7 style drifting it would not work because the game has very little content you just go and just immediately master it and what's what makes it still appealing today even with such little content is just it, it is difficult to master and the more you play you do feel yourself getting better and it, it feels very classic arcade in that sense uh, but you know, beyond beyond the handling, beyond the visuals, you know, it was also just a simple, smooth kind of experience. Uh, you know, minimal loading times. You could swap in your own soundtrack CDs. Yeah. It introduced the Namco, like, minigame thing that they patented. Yeah. Which is very, very common, that generation. It's so funny. It's, you know, when you're a kid and you're playing the game, you don't even really know what's going on. Um, it's only later on that I learn, like, oh, the whole time that I'm absolutely getting my uh you know my my butt kicked in galaga i'm actually <laughs> loading the game so i can put in a cd or something <laughs> or listen to a different soundtrack pretty funny yeah now i guess from here then i think it's important then to note um the ridge racer high spec yeah yeah which is which was the bonus disc concluded with ridge racer type 4 and i i actually think this is a really interesting bonus because it was essentially namco saying look how much we've learned uh, in these few short years. And it basically goes from the 320 by 240 at 30 frames per second of the original Ridge Racer to uh, it's a 480i interlaced image. So double, at least double, maybe quadruple the res. I actually don't know the pixel count on that. Uh, and it runs at 60 frames per second. So it's basically high res mode, 60 FPS, much more like the arcade. And yeah, it's pretty absurd to see that running on the original PlayStation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know about high spec until I was a lot older. Um, for, I didn't actually see the disc in action or hear about it in any magazines. So, obviously, once you kind of get into the rabbit hole of looking at these things, especially with Ridge Racer, this is one of the the kind of stories I was like, oh man, it would have been incredible to see that like firsthand when it first appeared. But even going back and visiting it, it just goes to show the importance of 60 uh, frames per second, which of course applies to many racing games. But I often feel as if kind of smooth frame rates are automatically attributed to like a more realistic kind of simulation experience. But when you see a, a great arcade racer running at those higher frame rates, it's just that it's totally transformative. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, 
I think from here we could talk about all the PlayStation Ridge Racers, but there's probably not time for that. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's let's stick with the launch titles. So I think Ridge Racer 5 then comes up next for me because uh so that was the first PlayStation 2 game, just like Ridge Racer was the first PlayStation game. And it, it's notorious for th the way they handle the field rendering does cause some uh, jaggies, as it was called at the time. But I don't think it's actually a serious problem today. And if you look beyond that, everything else going on there is just superb. Uh, I really feel like Namco showcased sort of what they could do with the hardware right away. Specifically, there's a lot to do with the you have the much more detailed car models throughout. They do a lot with lighting, like the blooming of the sun. Like as you pass through the trees and the sun's in the distance, you sort of see that huge like full screen glow from it. They even simulate uh, sort of the specular highlights on the road to a degree, or they, they try, you know, not exactly because the PlayStation 2 can't really do that, but uh, that's something they would push going forward as well. But it's just, and you know, there's depth of field effects in there and the replay. Um, you know, it's just, and it's the color scheme. You guys know what I mean. Like you look at the color scheme that they chose there and whether you're like midday, you know, dusk, uh, at night, like there's something that still feels really like, I don't know. It's just very appealing. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if it's, uh, something just kind of in my memory or if it's true or not, but I, I feel like there's a perception of that generation, the PS2, especially for having kind of sort of dark and sort of underwhelming from a color standpoint visuals, but, but Ridge Racer 5, I mean, whether or not that's true is kind of anecdotal, I guess, but Ridge Racer 5 definitely doesn't look like it. Um, it's a very, very pretty game. And yeah, it was never, I was never really bothered by the Jaggies that much. No, um, and I think on a CRT, even today, like it actually looks yeah. really crisp and, and fine. It's really just, you know, depending on your yeah. display and people, the, this game caused so much confusing at the time because people didn't understand why jaggies were happening. And there's really two reasons. First of all, a lot of PS2 games did use field rendering where they were literally taking advantage of interlacing by rendering like half frames per frame. So you'd have like mm -hmm. 224 lines per frame and it's like alternating the odd and even scan lines. Uh, but the other thing is that, you know, you'd hear all oh, the Dreamcast has anti-aliasing or something like that. It didn't. <laughs> it was literally just a flicker. It was a flicker filter for interlaced output. And the PS2 can absolutely do this. And a lot of games have this as well. It's really just a thing that, but on the PS2 programmers had to implement it. Whereas on Dreamcast, it seems like it was pretty much an automatic thing. But I've kind of come around on that. And I actually don't like flicker filtering on a real CRT anymore. I prefer the super raw, like mega sharp pixels of the PS2. Like it just looks really like intense and super sharp. In a way, so I I really like the I like the way this game looks. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, um, because I was actually watching your your Ridge Racer Five video recently, where you explain you know a lot about the field rendering and all of that. Um, you know, there's something weird with the with the textures on the car in this game. It's kind of like they're they're unfiltered. They're, oh yeah, they're they're point yeah. sampled exactly, and I think they did huh. that to like because you don't usually get the camera right up close to the cars. Uh, and I think right, yeah. they decided at launch there that it was better to not apply texture filtering to it just to keep it kind of sharper. Um, I'd be curious to see what it looked like with, with texture filtering enabled, but yeah, that was, I think it was just a design decision. They just opted not to filter those textures on the cars specifically. 
Now, what's interesting is that when you look at, uh, and I don't, we can move the topic along to this game or or not right now, and continue to talk about Ridge Racer Five for a bit. But when you look at Ridge Racers on the PSP, um, it has like they they kind of have those textures on the cars at the at a lower resolution, but they filter them to hell, so they look <laughs> pixelated but also extremely blurry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, I mean, we can move on to Ridge Racers because I feel like that was the next big step. Uh, you know, I, I, in some ways, I think Ridge Racers on PSP is one of the most impressive launch games ever. Absolutely. Like, yeah. I think up there with, like, the achievement of something like Super Mario 64, like, seeing the fact that Ridge Racers today, you load that up on a PSP right now, it's still an attractive game. Yep. Uh, it looks good like it's it's very very smooth so this was the first time we'd ever ever seen anything like this where you have uh basically near ps2 and in some ways beyond ps2 graphics running at a full 60 frames per second on a portable system like this <laughs> uh some of the things that they did that really impressed me was they actually did find a way to simulate um specular highlights on the road surface so do you guys know what that means when when i say that the, the the way the light kind of shines when it hits an object or yeah know, like if right? you have like a, yeah. if you have the sun on the horizon and you're driving into the road you actually see the glow of the sun sort of sparkling sure. off yeah. the the road surface yep. uh typically you know with xbox and going forward and now you would just do that with a pixel shader obviously this kind of hardware didn't really have that though the psp has some interesting functions and they were kind of able to simulate that to a degree and they also have like full uh, they're like probe reflections, I guess, are like capturing the environment and like mapping it to the car, kind of like, I guess, Gran Turismo 3, really. Whereas Ridge Racer 5 just used these sort of repeating uh, reflection textures that vary depending on whether you were in a tunnel or not. Whereas on PSP, the reflections actually correspond to the environment, which wow. is really mm -hmm. absurd for that. And so, yeah, just seeing all of this running at 60 FPS, I mean, obviously they the geometry and texture quality is slightly reduced over what we'd seen in the past, obviously due to those limitations, but on that small screen, you know, from a normal gameplay view, I don't think it's that noticeable. I think it gets kind of overlooked how unbelievable it was to see a game like this on the portable system in 2005. Coming off the Game Boy Advance, you know, going from that to to Ridge Racer yeah. on the PSP. I mean, even if you compare it to Ridge Racer 64 or Ridge Racer DS, yeah, which was Ridge Racer 64 <laughs> on the DS, like it's it's night and day. It, it really has better. aged. It's it's aged so well. It was so impressive at the time. I remember when I got my PSP, and and obviously I was pretty young at the time. I would just alternate between that and Wipeout Pure, which <laughs> was also you know very impressive. Yeah. Uh, it's a shame yeah. that this this kind of feat was not recreated on the Vita. The Ridge Racer game there, obviously, is very light on content, but also, you know, reduced frame rate. It's only it's 30 on frames everything. per second. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's really, it's really a shame that it turned out that way because Ridge Racer is on PSP. Uh, just amazing. And also, you know, there's the sequel, which is kind of like more Ridge Racers. Yep. But it's kind of like the ultimate Ridge Racers because it has mm -hmm. so much content. I mean, it's just absurd how many tracks and events are packed in that thing. It's it's so good. 
Ridge Racers 2 has got every single PlayStation 1 era Ridge Racer track um, and the obviously very large selection of cars and as far as the cars are concerned uh, what what distinguishes it from the first one is that it has the original uh, Angel and Devil car yep or at least the ones I think that were in Ridge Racer 5 so yeah, it is. It is like a best of. Um, the the shame about that one was that Ridge Racers Two did not come out in North America, uh, so I actually wasn't able to play the game until um, I, I recently jailbroke my Vita and I was able to get oh. up and running on there. And I actually I imported that from Japan at the time. I just come back from living there and I was like, oh, you know what, Ridge Racers <laughs> is coming out, Ridge Racers Two, so. I got that immediately, and then I find out later after moving to Europe that oh, it came out here as well. It's like it's just the USA that didn't get it for some reason. Yeah, so it, it is so <laughs> similar to the first game, except for those extra yeah. content additions that I kind of get it. I, I but kind it's of see. disappointing. But yeah. but you go back to like you know Ridge Racer Revolution and Ridge Racer and that kind of stuff, <laughs> and you think like yeah. I mean, come on, <laughs> they, they've done this before. Yeah, I think as a series, like, Ridge Racer is kind of strange like that. There is obviously numbered sequels and kind of big leaps, but for every one of those, there's also, like, those kind of bit-part titles, because, like, like we touched on, when, when you see this game compared to Ridge Racer DS, it was just, like, it underlined the huge power differential between the consoles and set the PSP oh, up yeah. nicely to kind of leverage that beyond And I guess, you know, to be fair to that, though, Ridge Racer... DS and 64. I mean, it was developed by NST, I think, in the US. So the DigiPen, I think, was oh, the. Oh, yeah. But, but they're not really ever kind of credited as DigiPen in the game. At least I don't think so. Although there is a car that is called DigiPen Racing, which is. There you go. Cute. So, but uh, yes, you're right. It was, but yes, it was developed in the US then. Yeah. Uh, by kind of a different team. And you can tell. I actually think they did all right, all things considered, but it doesn't feel authentic to Ridge Racer at the time. We we have a fan uh, in the Time Extend Discord who absolutely loves that game, uh, Shadow QXC, <laughs> and uh, he's he's adamant that it's like the best handling Ridge Racer game. He, he and he's mm. not I mean, it handles really well compared to those early games and you have the benefit oh, yeah. of the analog stick on the N64. It just doesn't, you know, from a style standpoint, it it just doesn't kind of reach the heights of of the other games. Still honestly, that's actually one the PSP Ridge Racer, I think it handles great for a portable game, but it is a little right. bit simplified. I still think that the series never got better than Ridge Racer 5's handling. Like to me, that is like the perfect handling. It just feels fantastic to control, and it requires just enough skill where you know and finesse that it really kind of pushes you to get better and keep playing. It's such a, a solid handling title, and yeah, I mean, I would. If there was ever to be a new Ridge Racer game, I would love for them to go back to that. But big time. Yeah. I guess I guess with that said, the the last one to really talk about is Ridge Racer Seven, right? Yeah, and yeah. you know, technically this is actually almost like a Ridge Racers Two situation where Ridge Racer Seven is kind of derived from Ridge Racer Six on Xbox three sixty. And I like both of these games, but seven was seven kind of bucks the trend of what was happening around the PS3 launch where PS3 games typically kind of looked and ran worse than Xbox 360 games, despite the system being touted as more powerful at the time. Yep. Whereas Ridge Racer 7 actually comes along, and Namco delivered, they were one of the only developers to deliver a full 1080p at 60 frames per second output. 
uh, for this game, like native 1080p for t for 2006. <laughs> this was just kind of absurd, and you know most people didn't have a 1080p TV at that point. I mean that's so. It's a it's not like pushing the tech, but you look back at that generation now, and I actually think Ridge Racer 7's aesthetic kind of holds up better than a lot of PS3 games. Uh, they didn't go crazy with all like the you know the the normal maps and yeah. uh, various modern lighting techniques and shadow maps, which all of those systems could do, but they couldn't do it well enough to make it like performant and super attractive. So Ridge Racer 7 kind of takes a more old style approach to visual rendering, but it does so at a really high fidelity and frame rate, and it's just uh, it really holds up nicely. I do like the subtle, the, the one effect I remember from that game is that when you hit the nitrous, there's a nice little kind of color banding that kind of pops into the screen. And that always yeah. looked really good to me. The RGB separation kind of effect. Yeah, yeah. It's a very Also, they added those reflections in the caves, if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I remember when you, that. I remember I think, being very impressed by the, the, the textures on, on the trees and the caves on, I think, Mist Falls as a track. But a lot of that is is being able to play the game like yeah it's a shame that considering at this time people probably had 720p tvs or maybe they hadn't even upgraded to hgtvs yet so you really only got to see the full brunt of what that game was doing once you had a, a better full hd tv in the future it was also interesting because they did everything in 1080p the full interface is all 1080p so super crisp fonts everywhere and you could even install the game to the hard drive uh, to like massively reduce loading times. Not that they were bad from the disc anyway, but you could make them very, very short. I think my, my only complaint, and the one thing that sticks out with me all these years later, is that for whatever reason, the car engine noises in Ridge Racer 7, to me it always sounds like a lawnmower going around the track. <laughs> and I've never been able to not hear that. It's the, it's the one thing that drives me nuts. Like Gran Turismo problem. <laughs> <laughs> but even more so, dude. It's like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just like, this is like whining noise compared to like, you know, even Ridge Racer 6. I really don't know why. Well, especially because, you know, in Ridge Racer 6 and 7, you're, you're always going to full speed, right? You're always bouncing off yes. that rev limiter. So you're going to hear that a lot. <laughs> you don't get a break. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's not like a racing sim where you're, you know, you're rowing the gears and you're actually using the full power of the car. Here, you're just like always full out. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the cool thing about Ridge Racer 7 too is that the, the, the servers are still up. So <laughs> as of like, I don't know. I mean, I probably haven't done this in almost a year. But I remember at the beginning of the pandemic with the friends, we were just playing Ridge Racer 7. We were the only people online, but it was... Uh, it was great. I mean, I'm just amazed that you can still play that game online today. That's super cool. I love that. <laughs> that game as well, on the online lobbies, I'm sure it had like auto-translating like quick chat commands, if I remember right. Because it was yes, like, you could, yes. you could talk to people like obviously with the, the preset um, sentences, but it was it was always so cool seeing like whatever flag, if it was somebody from Japan or something, and you could have like a kind of a back and forth conversation as much as Namco would allow, like, great race, uh, you too. <laughs> <laughs> it also had that kind of like news ticker kind of approach, right? Where you'd always be seeing like new high scores and everything kind of appearing along the ticker to kind of keep you playing. It, it was a really interesting, like, like uh, that faux internet kind of aesthetic. Yeah. 
Where you're like, oh, you're surrounded by info. Yeah, they used that to amazing effect in that game because when it wasn't showing online like latest times and stuff like that, uh, it would present sort of uh, contextual, you know, Ridge Racer lore on the ticker oh, yeah. there. You'd see like, uh, RT Sovalu boss Enki Gilbert had this to say. And it's just like, how many people in the world are going to care? But I love that. Like as a, as a Ridge Racer nerd, it's, it's so cool that they put that much effort into it. <laughs> oh, I love that Namco of that era. So yeah. good. <laughs> uh, so Ridge Racer alone took up a good half hour this episode. <laughs> as it should. You as know. it should. As it should. And with that, I, I guess it's it's time to move on. Uh, so we have a couple other games that we want to bring up. Um, the one that kind of came to my mind right away was actually the Sega Rally port on the Saturn. And yeah. um, the reason for that is, you know, you look at it, if you have a still image of the Model 2 original and you have a still image of the Saturn port and you put them next to each other, you, you probably would think, like, what's the big deal, right? Um because just in the still image, there is a reduction clearly of uh, of polygons. Uh, everything's not quite as sharp, and it it does look cut down for a Saturn game. But compare this to everything else at the time, and like to me, this is one of the most impressive arcade conversions ever. I mean, we were just talking about the original Ridge Racer, which is very impressive from a technical standpoint. But whereas I feel like I couldn't control the cars as well on the PlayStation with that controller uh, as uh, in the arcade version, you know, I really do think that the Saturn port of Sega Rally not only looks like it should and, and runs like it should, but just plays. The handling is still sublime. And Brendan, I know uh, that you still consider this, you know, like maybe your favorite racing game just in terms of feel, right? Yeah, definitely. And th that stretches across the the arcade cab and the Saturn port, like even even going back now, whenever I've had the chance to play on a cab, it's been fantastic. But playing the Saturn version just maintains that experience incredibly well. And to be honest, the Saturn like has no right to be kind of going toe to toe with a an arcade board at the time that was so like advanced. And it's it's an impressive experience all around because it it isn't like the identified one area to kind of cut down on and limit heavily but rather just kind of it seemed like it was spread evenly across the full experience so that if you've never played the arcade version 
you would never know that that's what it's based on because it just feels like a great experience on the Saturn itself. Yeah, I'm, that, I completely agree. So this was one of the Saturn games I got. So I got into Saturn, I think it was like late 97, 98 early. Because uh, I had a little stint where I was mostly into the PC. And I, I heard about, you know, Sega's next system. So I was like, I better get into the Saturn now. So I started buying tons of games for the Saturn around then when it was cheaper. And Sega Rally Championship was one of the first I got because I loved playing in the arcade. And yeah, I was super impressed with it because I actually think this is one of the finest ports of that era. Because like you say, they 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 did such an exceptional job of sort of capturing the artistic design of the arcade, like the colors, the textures, like the track design, everything feels basically spot on. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. just it looks like if one of my favorite things is, you know, if you if you let the game play the attract mode, like, it lines up so well with that arcade game. <laughs> yep. Like, if you kind of squint your eyes a little bit, you could almost, like, mistake them for one another, if not for the frame rate, of course. Uh, and it's just... It's it's such a step up. It feels like such a step up from Daytona USA. Which, again, Daytona would have been a very challenging game to port, just due to the nature of all those cars that can appear on screen. and But... Uh, Sega Rally, though, it's just, um, gosh, and it just, it looks and handles so well. Like, it really does feel, like, as close as you could imagine to, like, a proper arcade conversion at home. Yeah, it's so good that, like, honestly, I didn't really miss not having, I mean, so, so at least in the U.S., uh, I, I hear a lot from people in the U.K. that Sega Rally is very common over there. Uh, it was never common where I grew up on the East Coast. It was always Daytona. So um, I never really had much of an opportunity to play the Model 2 original, but this arcade port was so good that I didn't really care. Um, you know, the frame rate is half, and that it is what it is, but just having a consistent 30, which is, you know, what this game ran on, especially coming off Daytona, like you were saying, uh, it's really all you needed, just having that consistency. And Sega Rally, obviously, as, as one of those classic Sega arcade racers, is a game that rewards that sort of consistency. So you can just get dialed in and combine with the physics. It, w it was just, it was perfect. Yeah, I think this is a, this actually might be the Ridge Racer equivalent, or even more so. Yeah. Where if you actually even just look at like the chat, the track geometry and like the placement of the trees, you know everything like that, like it's almost one to one, which is genuinely shocking to see considering just how much more powerful the Model One board is or Model Two board is compared to Sega Saturn. But they really managed to cram everything in there and just sort of strategically cut down in areas where it makes sense. You know, of course the. The cars are slightly less detailed. Uh, the opponent cars are like flat shaded mostly yeah. mm. with just using colors instead of like textures and things like that. But like overall, uh, it's so close. And I think, you know, Brennan's right about the, the handling. Like it's, it's almost so good that I could almost say I prefer playing it on the Saturn versus the arcade game. <laughs> In on, some on ways, like I love playing too. on the, on yeah. the machine, the D pad. Like, yeah. Exactly, like, how the heck are the D-pad controls just so... <laughs> it just feels great. Like, it's it's really, really nice. And they were and very concerned about that, too. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, 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 you're absolutely right. So, 
I, I just think for, for the time, this this is... It's one of those things where, like, you can look at it now and kind of appreciate it, but I feel like if you were there at the time and you actually experienced it, especially, you know, I was lucky enough to have uh, Sega Rally, Daytona, and Virtua Racing arcade machines all at a local arcade, and then eventually Daytona 2. Uh, we had a huge arcade for this stuff. The dream. <laughs> so, you know, seeing this on the Saturn, and, and even by the time I had the Saturn, I already had a PC with a 3DFX graphics card in it as well. And even with even against that, I still felt like, wow, okay, this is actually this is really good. Uh, though it is interesting. Did you guys ever play the the PS2 port of Sega Rally? Yes. Yes. Yep. That's also quite good. I think that's M2 that did that actually. Now that I think about it. Yeah, I, I was never familiar with who was responsible for that. I mean, that is pretty much the arcade ROM, so much so that you could. Uh... I think some I saw somebody say that you could actually access a test menu or something. Yeah, it's very that possible. There's a bunch <laughs> of display modes and different options in there as well. And I think it's M2 based on the menu system. And if I remember, I can't remember 100%, but I think it was an M2 port. And yeah, that one is pretty much arcade perfect. Uh, since it's probably just the arcade game adapted to the PS2. But this is this is still more impressive and I, I actually think it's worth very briefly touching on the crushing disappointment that was Sega Rally Championship 2 on uh yeah Dreamcast because to me that was that was such a letdown in in, in a way that I, I can't even I couldn't believe what had happened there because you know I first saw Virtua Fighter 3 TB running on Dreamcast it was the first Dreamcast game I ever saw in person it was a Japanese imported unit and at the time, I hadn't done a side-by-side -side and learned that there were actually some visual, visual differences. Yeah. But, you know, just playing it there, it was like, wow, they actually have a Model 3 arcade game running, like, perfectly on the Dreamcast, which is absurd. Uh, but then you play Sega Rally, and the frame rate's just terrible. And I think that's just down to them relying on the Windows CE libraries yeah. instead of the uh, yeah. internal Sega APIs. And so it just... Windows CE would prove to not be quite performant enough on Dreamcast. And I think that ultimately kind of just killed that conversion, which is a shame. There, yeah. Oh, sorry, Brendan. No, I was just going to say, like, when, when I revisited Sega Rally 2 on the Dreamcast not so long ago, I, I was like, I, I must have somehow blocked it out of memory, but I was absolutely stunned at how poor um, it runs purely because, I mean, it's a fantastic game still, like, as a whole, but it really becomes difficult to put up with it, especially in the, the more challenging stages in the game. The frame drops happen in so in such random places too. Like um, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, it's it's probably was it muddy or like whatever one of the first tracks in the arcade mode is, um, or in the ten year championship mode. Like the second to last corner, you come around. It doesn't matter whether whether there's another car on screen or not. You will always lose like <laughs> half your frame rate right in that corner. Uh, so much so that when I went to play the art, like I was able to emulate the the Model Three version via Supermodel, which is a great way to play that game. Oh yeah. And uh, I I I was so confused when I went through that corner and the game was still 60 FPS. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> I'm not used to this. <laughs> See, that was actually pro probably the biggest mistake they made is like the variable frame rate. Basically, they're just rendering as fast as they can, but they, they use a double buffer V-Sync setup. So if it can't hit 60, if it misses that uh, render time, it just drops to 30. 
And so you just constantly going up and down. And I think that there is the code to lock it to 30. And then there's also the code it's considered the high frame rate code, but it was basically just removing detail <laughs> and you'd still get slow down, just less of it. But I think if they had just said, you know what, we're just going to cap this at 30 from the beginning. Uh, it may have been better received. Like the disappointment of not being 60 is there, but it should just be like this consistent it's better to have a consistent 30 than these constant teases where you're like, oh, I get this stretch of 60 and then you go around the corner and now it's 30 and that just feels awful. Yeah, it can make you feel a bit seasick. <laughs> this is actually something that um, I wasn't expecting, because I wasn't expecting to talk about Sega Rally 2, but I'm glad we are. And, and I'd like to ask you this, John, because there's always, I feel like I see this a lot um, with reference to the Dreamcast and, and those Model 3 ports. Um, yeah. There is a... I feel like there's a perception based on how uh, Virtual Fire 3 kind of diminished some things, uh, but but still looked okay for the time. And then Sega Rally 2 obviously had frame rate issues. There's sort of this perception that the Dreamcast could, couldn't handle Model 3. Do you, do you think it was a power thing or do you think it was just like not enough time? The system obviously didn't have very long to mature. I feel like you oh, could have gotten that, better ports than we did. And and you did. Virtual on Oratorio Tangram looks that's better true. than the arcade game. Yeah. And that's also Model 3. Uh, I just think it's a, it's a matter of time and using the right APIs. Cause, I mean, again, VF3 was done by Genki, I think. So it wasn't even Sega itself. And it was done for launch in yep. 1998. So doing a launch title at all, that's always just that's brutal. So I can see why things would be cut there. And then, of course, Sega Rally 2 just being that it was based on Windows CE. A bad decision there. But I, I think the Dreamcast could handle pretty much any Model 3 conversion if done right. But that's that's the key. Is it's, it's not a trivial thing. It's going to require <laughs> some hard work, no doubt. Uh, because the systems are comparable. And also, it's worth noting that uh, Model 3 games run at a slightly lower resolution than Dreamcast does hmm. like dreamcast outputs 640 by 480 pretty much uh and i think uh model 3 was like uh 384 some p i can't actually remember the exact number but it was it was higher res than most arcade games at the time but it was still lower res than what the dreamcast did so the dreamcast not only had to duplicate the visuals but it had to do it at a higher resolution so that also would no doubt place a strain on the resources yeah, uh, I will always go back to that uh, tech demo of Scud Race running on the Dreamcast that is on <sighs> YouTube in like, you know, awful 240p resolution or something like that and just cry about what could have been. Man, <laughs> my boss was actually at all of those Dreamcast like reveal things in, in Japan. Oh, man. And seeing all that, I'm, I'm envious. I wish he'd gotten some footage of it at the time because there's not enough, uh, not enough good footage of all this stuff. I, I have found myself, uh, you know, the, the old assembler forum, which I don't think is up anymore, but there were people on there who, and, and I don't know how much of it is actually real or not, but there, there were a couple folks who were saying like, who had all this background information about like what was really going on and how they were trying to port Scub Race and everything. And it's like, it's so hard to verify or basically impossible at this point, but I just get carried away with the, with the thoughts of it because... God, like Scud Race for me, uh, and I think a lot of people listening and, and Sega arcade fans would agree. You know, Scud Race and Daytona Two were the holy grail that we never got. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, Virtua Fighter Three and the Saturn. 
Yeah. Which was yeah. not really a thing, I don't think. Although, uh, I even asked you Suzuki himself about that. But of course, he uh, he's either just forgotten, which is what he said, or it's just like, uh, we're not talking about that. <laughs> but it does kind of get the impression that the people that maybe experimented with that, if it was a thing, just they don't remember, don't care that much. Yeah. But there, there was probably lots of shame. experimentation things going on. I think I think that's actually key, especially when a new platform hits. Like the programmers there, they're probably doing everything they can just to play around with it, you know, learn the system. And Sega itself, engineering the box is obviously going to be running a lot of a lot of tests and uh, you know test scenarios. So I could see this having happened in the back. Yeah. Yeah. So I could I could keep talking about those Sega games all day. Um, oh yeah, but so so let's move on to um, John. I don't know how much time you have, or for <laughs> I'm fine on time. Great, awesome, love to hear it. Um, let's move on to one that I, I think to me this is one of the most difficult for for me to unpack from a technical standpoint, and and what I know or, or rather don't know. And you can definitely uh, offer a lot on this. I feel, uh, and that is. A game that we've never really talked about in Time Extend, but we really should because it's very interesting. Uh, World Driver Championship on the N64. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, so this this came this was uh, came to us from from Boss Game Studios, which was one of those N64 uh, developers on the N64 that really kind of pushed the system early on. If you look at Top Gear Rally, which I don't think is a particularly fantastic game. But like, at the time, visually, I mean, that was the game that people were comparing against Sega Rally on the Saturn side, and everyone was floored by, you know, look at the car damage, which was really like, you could end up with some really weird-looking cars when you crash them in that game. But, uh, but, but you know, the, there were pretty big tracks, and they didn't really have any sort of like, uh, you know, the invisible walls and everything were kind of hard to find, these big environments and this really inter- interesting... Uh, kind of approach to physics uh even if the game was a little buggy and then you you move on um to this uh at the end of the n64's lifespan world driver championship and they they employed these uh technical tricks that no other game on the n64 was doing at the time um and that just kind of floors me but but before before i get into that um John, you were, you were saying you're actually familiar with this one and, and, and the people who were behind it. So yeah, from, from what I can tell and what I remember, I, I believe uh, Ezra Driesbach actually worked at Boss Game Studio on this. Now I need to... I, I my memory's a little fuzzy on this, but he was the guy, obviously, that did the work on Power Slave, Duke Nukem 3D, and Quake for the Sega Saturn. And then he would do uh, stuff like uh, Bowder's Gate Dark Alliance and everything on the PlayStation 2. And I think in the interim, uh, one of the games he worked on, I know he did like a Top Gear game as well, but I think he worked on this one as well, uh, was was this one, World Driver Tra- Championship. Because it's, t- it's top tier in terms of what it's delivering tech-wise for the system, I think. Uh, specifically, it's just... I mean, you guys kind of agree. It has it has a unique color palette and visual design that you really didn't see on the N64 that often. And sort of, it, it looks more like a PlayStation game, but in the best way. Yep. While taking advantage of N64's like hardware features, 
I guess. So like, it's all about lighting. Like it has, she has like beautiful sort of like more ambient lighting, you know, richly detailed polygons, uh, great texture work. that's higher res than usual. And everything runs mostly at a smooth 30 FPS. And it even has a nice high res mode, which runs in like ultra letterbox. But even it's if you very, don't very have sharp. the expansion pack, right? I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. And it was an interesting decision to go to that small letterbox format because obviously you're rendering less out to the screen that way. So you, you kind of Im improve your uh, performance budget there. But when you do it, uh, it looks so sharp for that system. It's really kind of absurd to see. And if you play it in first person point of view, uh, it really, really works well, I think. Yeah, I, I often see this and... Uh what was it, the Indiana Jones game? Uh, oh, from Factor 5. Yeah, kind of hailed as like the examples of the N64 being pushed to a place that people really didn't think it could go. Because um, you look at World Driver Championship, and to me anyway, th th this was billed as, you know, the N64's answer to Gran Turismo, which like, in terms of content, it really isn't. But no. uh, in terms of, you know, the car handling is, is pretty good, and visually it's very impressive it's it's better looking than gran turismo in terms of like you know it's not as pixelated uh runs a little bit more smoothly and actually i think like in some ways this game sort of visually to me anyway outperforms some of like the worst looking stuff on the dreamcast like it looks really good <laughs> and does not uh resemble i think anything like when i think about the n64 um yeah, I, I think about, you know, low draw distances and uh, anti-aliasing that just makes everything blurry. And, you know, I think about the worst examples. Like, World Driver Championship sort of bucks those trends. And it came out at the end, yeah. so it makes sense. Uh, I think part of, part of the thing there is that... Uh, so a lot of N64 games, they would just, due to the low texture cache, the small texture cache, you'd often see sort of these super low-res textures stretched out across the environment with like a very obvious repeating pattern. So a lot of racing games had this going on as well, where yeah. uh, I think one of, the, one of the most shocking things for me was when I loaded up, when I was talking about Road Rash recently, and I loaded up Road Rash on N64, and it's just smeared and, and just like <laughs> two or three textures at most uh, just like smeared across the environment there's nothing going on in the environment and there was a lot of games in the system like this where world driver championship actually presents tracks that feel like you say like it it almost looks like something that would be on dreamcast there's more variety there's more texture variety the textures yeah. are higher quality there's lots of foliage and like trees that actually hold up pretty well you know you're driving through like cities at night with like a bunch of unique buildings uh it's it's really just the variety and the fidelity of all those objects in the environment and the way it all comes together with their their lighting model that really makes it kind of stand out and it looks unlike most games in the 64. so I, so are you familiar with how they're kind of able to achieve this because i was i was doing research and um Basically, and you could, uh, I'm going to say some things here and you could correct me if I say anything that's wrong, but, uh, um, so Boss Game Studios kind of developed their own sort of replacement for the Z buffer, 
on the N64, from what I understand. Um, they, they had this microcode that was called Z-Sort. And it's actually a reason why, for a very long time, actually up until 2019, you really couldn't emulate this game. Because none of the emulators, I guess they really couldn't reverse engineer or understand how Z-Sort worked. But by sort of foregoing the Z-Buffer, not using that aspect of the N64, not using the tools that were there, they were able to greatly free up resources, um, which is just, uh, you know, crazy to me. I mean, yeah, look, obviously I'm not a developer, I'm not a programmer, I don't, I don't have a deep understanding of how these things work, but just that they were able to get so much performance out of the system by not using what everyone else was using uh, is very interesting. That's I, that, I think that's one of the secrets to the N64, and this is something Factor 5 also tended to do. Uh, you'd have there's a lot of like libraries and opcodes and other things that are just standard with the N64 development kit. And I think most games are developed around this, just using that stuff. And it's I don't know for sure, but from what I can gather, it seems like this was the Nintendo preferred way to do things. Almost like they just you know that was like the default way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some some developers like Boss, obviously they did a lot of their own uh, libraries and different uh, tricks, specifically that they developed for the system to allow it to use the hardware in a slightly different way. And I think that's why they're able to achieve these results is they just they didn't just stick with the default stuff. They actually went in and coded their own, which difficult. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it really kind of shows. And the few games that really did did it that way, you can really tell that they pushed it pretty hard. Yeah. Brendan, uh, I know you've been quiet, but I also know you, you didn't really have an N64 growing up, so... Yeah, uh, it's one of the, like, the, the kind of dark <laughs> spots in my kind of gaming history, really, um, because I was properly on that kind of PlayStation hype train at the time, and as far as Nintendo was concerned, it was kind of strictly uh, portables, which we'll probably come into a bit later. But, um, yeah, it's one of those ones where, when I, when I look at footage of this one, even just on YouTube and stuff, obviously not the ideal way of viewing it, but you can just see far and away, especially for me, like, the smoothness in the gameplay seems particularly impressive for the console. I just don't want to kind of make any passing statements about the game that might not be entirely true, since I'm basing it off of kind of highly compressed video, but... Um, definitely, just in terms of the history as well of this game, it was interesting for me to look up as well, because... Apparently, uh, Boss Studios nearly ended up working with Xbox on a game. That yep, and we covered that in uh, we covered that in our unreleased Racers episode. Basically, Ooh, yeah. they um, uh, there was this game called Racer X, and you can actually find footage of it online. And f- you know, listen to that episode if you want to hear more about it. But from what I remember, um, uh, Boss is actually working very closely with Microsoft in the lead up to the Xbox's launch. Um, and they had pretty much finished this game. Uh, and the, the physics were kind of uh, a draw upon what they achieved with World Driver Championship, which had uh, been an improvement on Top Gear Rally and whatever came before that. And and they had a lot of... Uh, they were proud of what they were able to do technically. Like, I remember reading something about the, the falling leaves or something on the track, accumulating on the track. Um but unfortunately, for whatever reason, uh, I think Microsoft was supposed to publish the game and didn't. Uh, they were looking for a publisher, couldn't find one, and the studio folded, um, which is really sad because, as, as we've discussed, they were 
going places that few were at the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I love that name too, Racer X. <laughs> it's, I, it's so perfect for the Xbox. I don't know if that's what they would have ultimately called the the you know final version <laughs> of the game, but y- you'd think it would have been uh, it at least would have been yeah. a good uh, complement to. Uh, PGR, which um, was obviously a, a fantastic launch title, but um, or Apex, if you remember that. Yes, Apex, uh, <laughs> Racing Racing Evolution, weird game. Or was it like fun Evolutione? Game. Or Evolutione. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've actually I was looking up just uh, some video footage of Racer X there, and obviously a YouTube comment take with a grain of salt, but I found a, a comment supposedly from the lead programmer on the game, and the guys went into like five separate paragraphs about the development. I can share that guys with you after the pod, but um, it does say about the name. Um, it would have been a lousy name. That was just a code name. Um, some of us considered it a World Driver Championship 2, but that would have meant a trademark conflict with Midway, so that never happened. And that's just oh. among a few things that this person says. Ah. I totally forgot the Midway published WDC. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is, actually. <laughs> uh, I can I can see how you would have missed this, though, being in the UK, because uh, the N64 situation in Europe is pretty dire, I feel. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Where it's like composite video only, everything's 25 hertz, there's really no easy way to do a region mod on anything because of the way the lockout works. So it's like you either POW or NTSC with N64, and there's really no getting around that, so... <laughs> the, the joys of being in the PAL region. I, I still am amazed to this day, like, a game like Sonic managed to take off. <laughs> Going way, way back, just purely based on how, like, hindered it was by that like, refresh rate and stuff. Slow and bordered. <laughs> exactly, but never I got to play the proper version of that game, I'm like, oh, okay, so this is how it's supposed to actually play. <laughs> I feel like the, the PlayStation Classic, I mean, the PlayStation Classic had a lot of issues, but that was... You really take growing up in North America. You really take NTSC or or you know Japan or Asia. You really take NTSC for for granted. And uh, playing some of those PAL games on the PlayStation Classic, I was like, wow. Well, to be fair though, with that it was more that they were converting fifty to sixty hertz, mm. so it looked really jerky. Okay. Whereas if you actually see fifty hertz on a CRT, it basically looks the same as sixty hertz. It's a little flickery, but it has the same level of fluidity. Gotcha. Visually, it's just uh, the games themselves weren't designed around it. So, yeah, they were often slow and bordered. And it was especially bad on the Mega Drive because you'd have like the, the color border around it because that was one of the main palettes they'd be pulling from, like Palette Zero or something. So you just have this huge colored area around the game and then you have like a postage stamp squished down <laughs> image of the game itself. I think we know why Sega didn't go with blast processing over here for their advertising then. <laughs> <laughs> Love those Mega Drive postage stamps. Um, yeah, so so WDC is an interesting one, and I think uh, the, the the last one, uh, you had actually brought this up, Brendan. This is a game I have never played. Uh, is the, the Game Boy Advance port of V-Rally 3, which came out actually pretty early in 2002. I didn't know that. I'm looking at this now, and it's very, uh, very, very impressive given how early this came out in the GBA's life. Yeah, exactly. Like th- this was one that I felt was worth bringing up purely because uh, we've talked about how getting the most out of a, a console can, can really show off 
a really kind of impressive technical showcase and I feel as if on the GBA um, the 3D experiences were so few and far between but the racing genre definitely seen quite a lot of them and in V-Rally's implementation it's not only impressive to look at even now just with the benefit of hindsight knowing what that console was capable of but also from the perspective of actually offering a very smooth and fun rally experience and I mean, there was no shortage of them on the GBA, to be honest, but V-Rally 3, this is like my favourite version of that game, purely because when I was playing through this as well, I had the GBA Micro, and just like the high quality screen, and obviously the, the screen size being smaller than the, the original GBA, it just made it like such a incredible experience to look at visually for a, a console from that, sorry, for a game from that generation. Yeah, it seems like they're just doing software-rendered full 3D environments on, on the GBA here. Uh, and then they're using sprites for the cars, which actually looks pretty good, with an, a fair number of frames for each position. So as you turn left and right, the car kind of moves left and right smoothly. So it's really quite convincing. And I guess on that small screen, the visual artifacts of like the, the texture swimming would be a lot less visible. Yeah, exactly. So it, and it's smooth. It's surprisingly smooth, I'd say. There's even a there's a dash uh, dash cam as there, well. There is like, a yeah. yeah look, there's yeah. a cockpit view. I, it's a texture, but it's it's yeah. more than you got in most games. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have cockpit views in in uh, you know console based racing games at the time for the most part, and you have one on the GPA. It's crazy. That is cool, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's so weird, though, that the ambitions of trying to do 3D on the GBA. And the fact is, like, most attempts actually don't really hold up well. Like, they're just kind of choppy yeah. and ugly and don't play nicely. Like, the 2D games are where it's at. But this is true. This is one of the few where it's fast and smooth enough where it actually still feels good to play. Like, it's quite nice. And that's... I think I mentioned it to you guys earlier, but it's kind of like a history with V-Rally on Portable. Like, if you go back to the original V-Rally on the Game Boy, the black and white Game Boy, that's also a super smooth, like, 3D perspective kind of racing game on that thing from 1989. Uh, and it's it's great. So it, this series kind of has a nice pedigree of delivering really smooth pseudo-3D or 3D uh, games on a portable system. I would like to give a shout-out to... Um... On YouTube, there is someone, the, the account is named Minimi. Uh, they did a whole video, a 35-minute video on the history of 3D gra 3D graphics on the Game Boy Advance Ooh. that goes into not just V-Rally 3, but but pretty much every 3D engine, which is very relevant to Time Extend because a, a lot of them were for racing games. <laughs> uh, more, <laughs> I would say it's, it seems like, you know, at least maybe like 50% of them were racing games. Um and you have a lot of uh, examples in there I'd forgotten about. Um, I think it is really impressive to look at what uh, the v V3 dev, uh, which was the developer for this, but Fernando Velez and Guillaume Dubail, um, what they were able to achieve because you look at, like, for example, the Sega Rally uh, game on GBA, which is ambitious, uh, but really hard to look at. This, so this actually gets into like a complaint of mine with uh, so I feel like in some ways racing games try to go polygonal too fast or like they got rid of some old techniques too quickly. Mm. So it applies on the GBA. It applies on systems like the Atari Jaguar as well, where it's like okay, these these systems aren't really that good at 
generating polygons sure. for games, right? Like, this yeah. turned out okay, but Superscaler, you know, Sega-style Superscaler games. Like, I feel like those died too early. Like, Absolutely. by the time we got to console hardware that could really deliver that, mm -hmm. uh, they just kind of disappeared. I mean, you've seen plenty of ports of stuff like Outrun, but Superscaler stuff went way further than that. And some of the last games, like, you look at, like, Outrunners... Or, like, there's that one Capcom game that I'm forgetting Slipstream, the name of. Slipstream, I think, the F1 yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's the one. You see those, just, it's all sprites, but it's so convincing and it's just so cool to see running. And I feel like it would have been great to see more games like that during that time. And I, I mentioned the Jaguar specifically because there's a game called Super Burnout on there that runs at smooth 60 FPS using super scalar kind of sprite scaling techniques it feels great every other uh 3d polygon game on the jaguar runs at like 10 frames per second in comparison but this is like 60 and it looks visually beautiful still so i didn't I, know like, about kind of lament the fact huh. yeah you guys should check it I'm out it's, it it's great looking mm -hmm. it's it's yeah. it's like man they should have done more games like this this reminds me hardware. kind of of riding hero uh the the neo geo game yeah um, yeah, yeah yeah i mean more more advanced probably but yeah this is this is really pretty the racing on laguna seca which is uh pretty funny yep. it's a real track yeah <laughs> so yeah you know i i wish we had seen more sprite scaling racing games and i think gba could have been an interesting place to do more of that potentially uh but it just kind of you know polygons kind of won the day and there were a lot of great polygonal racers you know during the the 32 and 64 bit era of course but you know it would have been cool to see more and and also some slightly better ports like power drift got ported to the saturn for instance and it's like arcade perfect visually but it Man, runs at half the frame rate that port is so I'm, expensive i've wanted it for I'm so long positive though that it could run at 60 <laughs> given given the time but even at 30 though it's pretty smooth and awesome just to see that running on the saturn it looks it looks great <laughs> Power Drift is a Power Drift is a gorgeous game. I also really love yeah, the uh, original arcade version of uh, of Super Monaco GP. Um, yeah, that game is yeah, very pretty. Yeah. It, it, it is amazing to me, especially when you look at like Super Monaco GP, how like they were able to approach something that looked so realistic, even though you know it was just a collection of scaled 2D texture or, uh, sprites. You know, it's it, it really is amazing that they were able to sort of. There's still almost this like vintage photographic quality to the visuals in those games using the tech they had. It's kind of weird though. I mean, the Saturn really is kind of doing that all the anyway. It's just with additional coordinates mm. to to create the illusion of 3D, basically using quads. But it's basically a bunch of distorted sprites in 3D Saturn games. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. The Gale Racer is interesting for that reason too, because. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's quite. A, they changed that a lot from the arcade game it's based on. They made the cars they had a, polygonal, I think. and it looks worse for it. I think. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I think like the push towards polygonal was probably driven about on portables as well, just to try and kind of emulate the home console experience as much as possible. I think, looking back, like we're seeing more super scalar games and stuff would have been great and. I think nowadays, as we, we see indie games especially, try and replicate old styles that perhaps died off too quickly, such as Victory Heat Rally, which is going for this type of style. Um, I think we, we will get some cool games with this type of tech now, but definitely I think it was 
maybe trying to, to run before you could walk type scenario almost, trying to fit in like a full 3D engine on the GBA. Perhaps it would have been better to just kind of opt more for this type of style of game. I completely agree. I'm still sore about the lack of a home <laughs> port of Outrunners that's actually like, you know, matches the arcade game. Yeah. <sighs> well, there is there is now that uh, uh, well, Arcade 1-Up makes that miniature Outrun cabinet that that's does true. have the arcade version of Outrunners. So if you want to spend $500 and have the room for it, there's your <laughs> Outrunners port. <laughs> uh, well... Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, I don't really have much more to say about the game we were originally talking about because I, I haven't played it. But uh, it, it looks good, <laughs> Brendan. It looks great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I just, it game. was more of a shout out than anything, <laughs> just because I was impressed. With. It's a good one to throw in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean that's that's all I brought, and uh, you know that's pretty much all I have to say. I I, I don't want to, you know end things right now uh, unless we're all unless we're all pretty satisfied but uh yeah i really enjoyed this conversation this was great yeah i mean that's the thing with this kind of subject is it, you could go on and on and on and there's so many examples of this but you know you always run the risk of going too far and sometimes it's better to save that for uh future discussions but we're gonna do I a think, part I two like okay was... i got you john yep <laughs> Let, you heard go. you loud and clear <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think the series we talked about today, those specific games as well, are, are all really interesting examples of pushing the technology in a very positive way at the time. And, you know, a lot of those games I still love and still play regularly. And, you know, I didn't, we didn't even touch on the fact that, you know, especially with like Sega Rally Port, you could play that in split screen. Yes. Which was even, which was even wilder to think that the Saturn was doing that playing a game like that in split screen mode and it was smooth come on at a time awesome. when you had to link <laughs> playstations together to play the early ridge racer games exactly <laughs> overall john thank you so much uh for for coming on the show the the, the expertise you uh you lend is obviously you know indispensable and hey it's just it's great to talk about old racing games with someone else who loves old racing games so uh, very much yeah appreciate thanks for that. having me I, I love talking old racing games that's for sure <laughs> um and yeah i mean that's uh brent brent you got anything more to say before we, we close this one out <laughs> no no it's still obviously the same sentiment here i mean when it comes to discussing old racing games and you want to look at maybe a bit more of the tech behind it i mean you're kind of the 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 facto go-to for that, John. So, and we also knew that you would enjoy being able to talk about these games. So, um, it's been great just recapping some elements. And one of the kind of common threads we often see is that we don't somehow talk about Ridge Racer enough. So, hopefully, yep. everybody enjoyed that forty-minute or so addendum to the the yeah. previous discussions we've had. No matter how much we talk Ridge about Ridge Racer. Racer, it's never enough for these people. So. <laughs> no, it's, you can always talk about Ridge Racer. We just want it to come back. That's all. Everybody wants it to come back. We had uh, we to do it right. We had Paul Ruchinski on the show, who you know, developer of Drive Club and uh, Project oh, man, Paul's such a, on Rush. What a, what a nice dude. He's fantastic. Paul. And we asked him, Paul, what would what what racing game would you make if you could work on anything? And he was like, It's gotta be Ridge Racer. It's gotta be. That would be awesome. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Uh, all right. Well, 
everyone, thank you so much for listening uh, to this episode. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you.